Hello and welcome to the Luke Miller Podcast. I'm glad that you're able to join us this week. On this week's episode, we're taking a look at anything and everything covenants, as well as a broad stroke of the overall minor prophets or the book of the 12th. We're going to see some of those key themes and understand that as we see those key themes in the 11 books prior to Malachi, we understand why God is in the place where he is and why the message he is delivering is so prevalent not only to the people of Israel right then and there, but to us today. I'm excited for what we've got in store. I think God's going to do some great things as we study his word. Let's dive in. Biblical covenant is a unifying thread that takes place throughout all of scripture, Uh, but nowhere is it more prevalent than in the books of the law and in the first five books of the Bible. There we see that that God's relationship with his people is very much uh, developed. Uh, and as the people start to discover what this looks like, uh, we get a better picture of who God is. Likewise, in the Minor Prophets, where we have 12 small books, uh, we see that there is unifying themes that happen. And all of it is really ba- all of it is based on God's covenant with his people. And and throughout scripture, we see that there's a lot of covenant language, but again, there are some key places in the first five books of the Bible, specifically Deuteronomy and Leviticus, where we see God is laying out a very uh, intentional plan for his people, but also there are guidelines and things that they need to follow. Uh, it's where we get the blessings and the curses from. And there's there's five key uh, chapters in the Bible that relate to this. And so much of every of what every prophet says after uh, that moment revolves around these five passages. And the first four we actually find in Deuteronomy uh, in chapter 4, 28, 29, and 32. And the fifth one we find in Leviticus 26, uh, verses 14 through 39. And and for us, as we look at Malachi and try and get a better a better picture of of why God is delivering His message, we see that that throughout the first twelve book or first eleven books of the minor prophets, and throughout all the major prophets, God has continually brought the people back to referencing those Deuteronomy passages. For those of you who have uh, Bibles that have the footnotes in them or the cross-references, you'll notice that as you go through the prophets, and Malachi is no different, that you will see a lot of those passages that I just mentioned pop up throughout throughout reading this. And whenever God mentions covenant, it'll bring you back to Deuteronomy 4 or 28 or 29 or 32 or Leviticus chapter 26. And there's a clear reason for that, is that Prophets were sent to remind the people of their relationship with God and their covenant with God. God is a covenant-keeping God. He did not want to to break a covenant with them. Uh, But that also, as we are about to see in Malachi, gave a very clear picture of that does not mean that God won't pronounce judgment on you and judgment will not happen. And so if we take a look first at the uh, the minor prophets as a whole and some of the unifying themes that happen there, we're able to get a, a better picture of that. Now, a fun little fact that I like to uh, mention as we go through this is that we have two different orders in which we can see the the Book of the Twelve or the Minor Prophets. We have our canonical order, which is the order that we see it in our Bible, but we also have 
a chronological order, uh, which is a lot, or it's slightly different. Uh, At the end of the day, the last six books of the Minor Prophets are the same. They're in canonical and chronological order. It's the first six that actually change. In our Bibles, we see Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, and Micah. Uh, Yet, if we were in chronological order, we'd actually flip some of those around where we'd see Obadiah being first, then Joel, then Jonah, then Amos, then Hosea, and then Micah. And and the last six are all the same, uh, whether it's canonical or chronological. But but we also have another thing to take into account, not only the time period in which these are occurring, but where they are actually prophesying. Uh, and so with our minor prophets, we see that at the time uh, in the Bible that there are two kingdoms uh, as we get into to Second Kings, and we look at Chronicles, and we look at where a majority of the major and minor prophets are talking, where there's two kingdoms. Israel is a divided nation. There is the north, which is referred to as Israel, and there's the south, which is referred to as Judah. Now, Israel has three main minor prophets uh, that are there. We have Jonah, we have Amos, and we have Hosea. In the southern kingdom, in Judah, where Jerusalem is, uh, we see Obadiah, Joel, Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, and Habakkuk. But then there's a very interesting, uh, an interesting group as well, a group of three, and that's where Malachi comes in, and that is post-exilic. As we see the end of Israel's time uh, before getting carried off uh, into captivity, we find ourselves at that time frame, uh, the time frame between Zephaniah, or sorry, I should say Micah and Nahum. Uh, and actually even further, we go uh, further beyond it and say Zephaniah and Haggai uh, and Habakkuk and Haggai. And that's where Israel gets carried off into captivity. Remember, there's only a slight difference where they swap around um uh, just two names in the last six books uh, in as far as order goes. But when we're looking chronologically, uh, there's a tiny, very tiny period between Zephaniah, Habakkuk, and then we have exile. The people of Israel are carried off into captivity. God has finally had enough. And, and then we, after 70 years, we find that there are now the post-exilic prophets. And, and that's where we find uh, the three that we've got Haggai, Zechariah, and of course, the one that we're taking a look at, which is Malachi. Uh, And so it's important for us to understand not only the time in which the the minor prophets are prophesying, but also understand uh, the location as well. So putting this into perspective, the lives of the prophets in the book of the the Twelve span a period of really three centuries, and yet their themes are not different as they move through it. You think that you would learn after three centuries when you keep on coming up with the same problem, Uh, but over those three centuries, they ministered in some of Israel's most uh, tumultuous days and, and some of its toughest days that it faced. The Lord had promised through Moses that he would send prophets to communicate his word to his people, and that is found in Deuteronomy chapter 18, uh, verses 15 to 22. These were the messengers of God. This is why so many of the prophets start with, thus says the Lord, to keep with Deuteronomy chapter 18. And he kept his promise even as he prepared to bring judgment against Israel, against Judah for their unfaithfulness, which 
persisted for hundreds of years, over three centuries of the Minor Prophets' time. And the specific of the the mission of the Minor Prophets themselves was to call the people to repentance so that they might uh, avoid the judgment that God was going to put on them. That's the first one. The second was to warn them of the judgment of exile when no repentance, when they didn't listen to God. But finally, and this is where an interesting, the interesting one is that we don't often mention, is that it provides hope for the future as the people return to the land following exile. Now, the Lord sent prophets to Israel and Judah during the, uh, the Assyrian crisis uh, and the fall of, of Samaria in 722 BC, and then sent more prophets to Judah uh, in Babylon in the Babylonian crisis. Uh, before the fall of Jerusalem itself, which takes place in 586, this is uh, an important uh, an important thing or dates for us to just understand. If we're looking at the history of everything that's happening, um, the the two key dates are two of the key dates in in Israel is 722, which is where we see Israel carried off in the in the Assyrian crisis, and then 586 when. Uh, Judah is carried off uh, into captivity, into Babylonian captivity. Out of that, we see the stories of of Daniel uh, and uh, and what's taking place in Babylon. And in the book of the twelve or, or the minor prophets, really reflects disappointment that full restoration has yet to occur. But it it holds on to this hope that God would never abandon His people or His commitment to fully bless them and extend. And this is important for us to understand. Uh, extend the blessing of salvation to the nations. And and you may ask, where is this coming from? And and throughout Scripture, uh, as I mentioned or alluded to a little earlier, we find that there are a, a covenant plays a very important role in in everything that God does in His relationship with His people, and. And we see covenant, uh, God's covenant, in several different places and in several different ways, which is, of course, very important for us to understand. Again, that covenant language is something that is threaded throughout all of Scripture. And there are five key covenants that I'm only going to touch upon, and because that's another podcast for another day. Uh, but we see that God makes some very key covenants, one with Noah, one with Abraham, one with Israel, one with David, and then the new covenant, which is brought in by Jesus Christ. And and each one of these plays a very important role in the message that the prophets deliver. The first one being uh, Noah's covenant. Uh, and, and this is an unconditional covenant, grounded in the promise that God will never again destroy the world until redemption is fully accomplished. And God actually leaves a sign for that. Genesis chapter 9, we see the rainbow as a sign. God has withdrawn his weapons of war uh, and uh, and won't destroy the people for breaking that covenant. And so that's God's promise. That really sets out a lot of what comes next, because the next covenant we see comes in Genesis 12 and is reiterated in chapter 15 and 17, which is God's promise to Abraham. Uh, and the covenant with Noah provided the circumstances of redemption, uh, but we also see that Abraham was to leave his land and to follow God wherever he leads uh, and, and take his family with them. Uh, and, 
and at the same time, God and man would have a very important role to play. It wasn't just God uh, making a promise. It was a relationship that was now starting. Uh, and so it was really meant to be that God had a future for his people. And and one of those key passages in Genesis chapter 12 is the fact that we've got ourselves, uh, or we've got God promising Abram that he will bless him. He will bless the nations that also bless him. But there's this key thing that we also see, a very much sending narrative, which says he will be a blessing to all the other nations at the end of that passage in Genesis chapter 12. Which then brings us to the Mosaic Covenant, uh, God's covenant with his Israel, with Israel. God rescues Israel from slavery in Egypt, and he promises to make them his own treasured possession, set apart, holy, uh, a set apart nation. Uh, and he will uh, dwell with them and bring them into the land that he promised. We see this in Exodus chapters 19 through 24. This is one of the reasons, and this covenant, when we look at God being a covenant God, for those history buffs out there, uh, can take a look at when people have attacked Israel, even modern day, and can see how in so many ways God is with his people uh, still, and that covenant is not broken. Uh, and in, in the fourth covenant that we see is the Davidic covenant, and God establishes David as king over Israel and promises he'll make him great. But he also promises that his kingdom will last forever. This is so much messianic in its nature. Uh, and and the mention of, of, in many ways, that David would have that royal line. And as we tra- if you open the book of Matthew, the, f- the first book that you see after, after Malachi, you see that it immediately goes to genealogies, which is to trace that Davidic covenant uh, so that people can see that Jesus came from the line of David, uh, which brings us to our last covenant, which is the new covenant uh, through Jesus. Uh, and so uh, in, in, in what we see in Malachi and what we see in that first stage is especially of the Gospels, we see that so much of what Jesus talks about is that covenant language. And and the more we understand that, and the more we understand that this is a promise, this is not a suggestion, but we can also see that every prophet delivered that exact same message. I mean, people disobeying God return, and you will have restoration. And and everything is about that restorative power that God wants and that hope that God wants his people to have, but they have to get out of that rut that they're in. So you have to understand that when we hear covenant and when the the Jewish people hear covenant, they understand that relationship with God. They understand those, for Jewish people, they understand those four key covenants, not the new covenant through Jesus, but they understand the four of, of David, Noah, Moses, and Abraham. Uh, Christians add that covenant in the New Testament as Jesus arrives on the scene and the message of Jesus and really bringing that restorative power to absolutely everyone. So now as we get about halfway through this podcast, or I'm probably way over what halfway should have been, you have to ask yourselves, well, what does this have to do with Malachi? Well, the more we understand covenant and the more we understand that really God's covenant with his people and his rules for his people and his guidelines for his people come from really only five key parts of scripture. 
where God calls them to follow him uh, in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Can you understand that when every prophet and every minor prophet shows up, they're delivering that same message to the people of Israel and they just can't get it? For those of you who have kids, it may be that equivalent of saying, hey, clean your room. Hey, clean your room. And you hear, okay, in a minute. And you're like, no, no, now, clean your room. Okay, 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 I will. And you go in maybe 15 minutes later, half an hour later, and find that they're just now playing in their room, not cleaning it. I thought I told you to clean their room. Yeah, we're going to clean it when we're done. <laughs> you know, there's always this perpetual, oh, yeah, maybe we will turn back. And and that message as a parent gets more and more frustrating. So you understand how the message, the same message being delivered to the people of Israel uh, could be equally frustrating uh, to, to God, probably infinitely more. Now, now that brings us to the last three prophets, the ones that we've been uh, touching upon, uh, but the post-exilic prophets, which takes us to Haggai, Zechariah, and of course the book we're studying, Malachi. And to set the historical setting for this as well and go a little deeper in this, we understand have to understand what's happening. God in his covenant relationship with his people, exiled them after sending the first nine minor prophets and the major prophets to deliver a message to the people saying, turn back to me, otherwise I will exile you. God finally exiles them, does not abandon them. And and then that brings us to the stories of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the post-exilic prophets as they start to head back. And this all happens from, and we've got, Archaeological evidence of this coming from this, what we call the Cyrus Cylinder, which is dated about 538 BC. And, and Cyrus II of Persia rose to power in about 559 BC. And after uniting the Persians and the Medes together, they marched on Babylon uh, in 539. And it was a major victory over the Babylonians, who were the army of the time. And they took Babylon itself without any resistance. Uh, bringing an end to the short-lived Babylonian Empire. And Cyrus issued a decree in 538, allowing the Jews to return to their homeland. We see this same decree mentioned in biblical terms in 2 Chronicles 36 and in Ezra chapter 1 and chapter 6. And when the Cyrus Cylinder was discovered uh, in the late 1800s, it revealed the Persian policy and, and foreign policy, if you will, uh, which allowed conquered peoples to return to their homelands and rebuild their temples. Now, this is a slightly genius on, on Cyrus's part. Cyrus hoped to gain from the revenue of thriving provinces in, in thriving areas of the kingdom, and he also hoped to receive favor from foreign gods and establish a bit of a buffer zone between him and his enemies. Meaning if the Egyptians had, if the Egyptians wanted to come and attack Cyrus in Persia, they would have to travel through several of the Persian territories of the, of the exiles who had now been sent back. So there would be kind of a heads up. They would know. So this was strategic from a military standpoint. For Cyrus, this was strategic from a spiritual standpoint. And it was also uh, for a financial. So you can, he's really covering all the bases from military to politics to spiritual uh, 
benefits uh, in his foreign policy that he's trying to to look at. In, in many ways, it, it was a very brilliant strategy. A majority of the Jews living in exile had already acclimatized themselves to the surroundings, and a lot remained in the foreign lands. But groups, uh, at least for of biblical standards, of about 50,000 returned to Judah in Ezra chapter 2. And, and the circumstances that were faced by those returning to Judah— hardly matched the the conditions envisioned by the prophets before and during the time of exile, as they spoke of Israel's restoration and renewal. And the post-exilic community remained under Persian control. They were surrounded by enemies. They were the first line of defenses for the Persian Empire. And as we read through the book of Nehemiah, even, we see that people were very much opposed to resettlement happening. Uh, as Israel came back, there were people who'd been staying there. Uh, there are people who had taken up home in the land and did not want all of a sudden Israel to build its temple, did want, not want them to be productive, and, and did not want that renewed sense of community. The walls of Jerusalem and the temple were in ruins, uh, and the people had come home, but they had not fully returned to God. And that's where Malachi comes in. That's where, well, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi comes in. It's amazing that, uh, and if we use our cleaning our room analogy, we can say after you ask 20 times for your kid to clean their room and they don't, they finally clean their room. And then the next day you come back and somehow it has become just as messy as it was the day before it was cleaned, right? And and you're wondering, how has it happened? How have you not learned to keep your room clean? For Israel is, how have you not just fully returned to God? And that is a challenge that they that they have. The first group returns in 536, um, and the Lord commissioned the prophets in, in 520, Haggai and Zechariah, to encourage the people to finish the task of rebuilding the temple. Uh, and, and that really brings us uh, further down the road to that time of where we uh, actually see Malachi. Now, the historical period to which the the Minor Prophets belong concluded without Israel ever experiencing that full restoration. Uh, The Lord promised uh, through his prophets, yet Malachi announces that the Lord would send Elijah the prophet before a great and awesome day of the Lord. That's in Malachi chapter 4, 5 signifying that another time of great judgment would precede Israel's ultimate restoration. And then, immediately the New Testament opens, well, immediately 400 years later, the New Testament opens with John the Baptist announcing the impending arrival of God's kingdom and Jesus the Messiah, who would fulfill the promises of the prophets. Uh, And despite what we we would probably describe as a fairly disappointing tenure for prophets of not being able to get to the people of God to change, we see that their promises of salvation and restoration for Israel and the nation would not go by the wayside. It would not fail. Uh, and and that's where that coming judgment, and we'll talk about this more as we go deeper into chapter three and four of the day of the Lord and that ultimate hope that is that is there. But you have so so the purpose of today as we look at this is not only to understand the minor prophets and the 12 minor prophets and the message that they continually deliver. Uh, and and again, 
So much of it was to expose sinful practices, to call the people back to the law, and this warning of coming judgment. And then finally, in Malachi, this anticipation of the coming Messiah. Um, and, And as we understand that the message of the prophets was unified, Unified under God, unified in in what God was telling them, we we get a better picture with Malachi, which is unique in the sense that it's the only book where judgment actually happens right in the book uh, of uh, of the prophet itself. Uh, at the end of it, you can understand the added frustration, but you can understand also the hope of knowing that. Full restoration has not happened yet. God had, did not give up on his people. And, and we'll probably touch upon this. We will touch upon this, uh, what replacement theology looks like and how dangerous it is uh, when it comes to that covenant language, to, to think that the church has replaced uh, God's covenant with, his, with Israel. Uh, but, but we'll go deeper into that into the future. But for today, it was understanding not only the overarching theme in, in the time periods, in the vast time period that that the minor prophets ministered, but understanding a bit more of that historical context of what brought them back uh, and and how God is God was using his people even when they weren't fully restored back to them. And that's uh, something that I think is is so cool. And we saw that how archaeology and the the Cyrus Cylinder actually shows that God's people returning back to uh, their land and the decree that matches that of Second Chronicles is matched with Persian records as well. I'm going to end there because I realize that I have gone over for today uh, probably in a very big way. But we're going to continue on this as we journey through Malachi. I hope this is providing better context. Again, that little German phrase, the Seithenleben, the original setting, the original context is such an important thing. And the original context and setting uh, of Malachi itself is understanding not only the return from exile, but understanding that covenant relationship of those five covenants of Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and then the new covenant. We'll talk more about that. Uh, You should know by now that I'm never really done talking, uh, but we'll finish here uh, and we'll leave it for this week. I want to thank you for joining me again. This is one of those chapters and books that is difficult, yet the more we understand the context, the more we see that beautiful tapestry that God has painted through his minor prophets and how much it is relevant to us today as we look to be restored, as we look to restore hope to others. Thanks for joining me. I'm looking forward to next week as we continue to dive in. Take care. We'll talk next week. 